Testing, testing, check, check. Are you there, Jonathan? I'm here. One, two, three. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and I'm excited about today's episode and today's guest, because today on the show, we're going to have an apologist that I have admired and followed for quite some time. And um, I think you've probably seen him before as well. So I'll welcome him to the show now. Jonathan McClatchy, Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. So excited to have you here today. Thank you for coming, brother. Thanks so much, uh, Braxton, for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. Why don't you just take a few minutes and tell us, uh, well, obviously, first, we're having you on the show today primarily because um, you're having recently debated Matt Dillahunty gives me an opportunity to, uh, gives me an excuse to have you on and talk with you. And, and I've always wanted to do that. I always wanted to meet you. So it's one of the cool things about having these YouTube channels these days is you can have your favorite apologist just come on your show. And so, um, so that's why you're here. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about you, what you do academically, what your background is, what, um, what your ministry is like, why you're interested in these, deb- whatever you want to talk about. I don't really care. Whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> sure. So I'm an assistant professor of biology at a Christian college based in Boston, Massachusetts. It's called Sattler College. I, I, uh, I've been teaching there for a year now, uh, just uh, beginning my second year of, of teaching there. I uh, graduated with my PhD uh, back in January uh, in biology from Newcastle University. And uh, prior to that, I also did a master's degree in medical and molecular bioscience, as well as a master's degree in evolutionary biology. And prior to that, I, I did a bachelor's degree in forensic biology. I've also uh, I, I worked for a year between 2012 and 2013 at the Discovery Institute, Center for Science and Culture, doing work relating to intelligent design. Uh, so uh, evidence of, of design in, in the natural sciences, especially in uh, biology. 
And uh, I'm also currently doing a Master of Arts program in Biblical Studies at Southern Evangelical Seminary as well. So I have a website, which is jonathanmcclatchy.com, where people can find me. Uh, I uh, am very um, keen to uh, counsel Christians who wrestle with intellectual doubts. It's something I do quite regularly. So there's a forum on my website that people can contact me uh, through, and uh, they can tell me about their intellectual doubts concerning the veracity of the Christian faith, uh, whether they're a Christian who's wrestling with doubts or someone who's recently lost their faith, or a skeptic who has sincere questions, and I set up Zoom meetings to talk with them in confidence about their doubts and, and try to help them to develop a protocol for working through doubts in an intellectually responsible way. Well, you know, uh, Jonathan, um, obviously a lot of times um, skeptics will say, uh, they'll look for like only scientific evidence. It's like a scientism or something. And um, even when we're talking about other things, they want to hold it to a, a sciencey kind of a paradigm. And of course, there are great inferences we can make from science and things like that. But I imagine that it kind of takes the wind out of some skeptic sales when they hear that you're a biologist, right? Doesn't that kind of help with the street cred a little bit? Yeah, a little bit, especially uh, given my interest in intelligent design. And uh, I, I actually did my master's, uh, one of my master's degrees and, and my PhD in the field of evolutionary biology. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a topic that's always been of, of interest to me. And uh, I think there's tremendous evidence of, of design, uh, not just in the physical sciences with the fine tuning and so forth of the laws and constants, but also design in the life sciences, um, especially pertaining to the, the information bearing content of DNA and RNA and the, the genetic code and the origins of macromolecular machines in the cell and so forth. So that's always been a, a strong interest of mine. Well, we have a lot of content to get to, but one last question about that material before we move on is as I've been uh, this past, the first part of this year, I, I was doing a lot of study myself just autodidactically in with respect to first life and abiogenesis and all those kind of things, trying to learn what I could. Uh, and um, I was told by at least one online skeptic that it is that you know you just talked about information in um, DNA and and all of that sort of thing. And we're used to talking about the code the the code language and the RNA copies that and takes it builds the protein molecules all those kind of things. And I was told by an online skeptic that it is improper to talk about that as information or as a code. And that in the literature and among real scientists they they never use that terminology. Is that true? No, that's just not that's just nonsense. I mean the. The, the mapping system between codons and amino acids is, is called the genetic code. That's the standard nomenclature. Uh, it's referred to as, as biological information. So I don't know where he's getting that from. Uh, so that, that's just simply nonsense. All right. Well, let's jump into this, uh, Jonathan. Anything you want to say to preface our discussion of this debate? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I did a debate uh, last Friday with uh, Matt Dillahunty, who is uh, well known, I'm sure, to your viewers as the host of the or one of the, the, the main hosts of the Atheist Experience TV show, which is uh, based in Austin, Texas. And uh, they run every Sunday. Uh, and basically, they, they're on their show, they invite Christians to call in uh, and challenge them with arguments for the existence of God. And uh, they uh, like to uh, try to uh, offer a critical appraisal of, of those arguments. And basically the whole purpose of the show, the atheist experience is to make Christians look stupid. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the show. Uh, they, they prey on low hanging fruit. And of course it's easy. Yeah, any Christian scholar can make an atheist, make an atheist off the street, look like an idiot as well. Um, or, look, or make them to look quite foolish. And I think that's one of the primary purposes of the atheist experience is just to make Christians look foolish. And, uh, 
on the occasion when an informed Christian calls in, so I've called in a few times, and typically what happens is they say, well, why are you calling an atheism uh, show to talk about uh, the evidence of design in in biology or the evidence for the uh, uh, resurrection based on New Testament studies or what have you? Why are you not talking to the scholars in your field? Well, why are you holding an atheism show inviting Christians to call in if you're only willing to talk to people who are uninformed. So I think that really speaks volumes about the intent and purpose of those programs. It's not to have an honest uh, discussion to try to move closer to truth, but it's the whole point of the program is to attempt to make Christians look foolish. Um, so I, I find uh, the atheist community of Austin's uh, live call-in programs to be quite uh, disingenuous, to be honest. Um, so anyway, I, I debated Matt Dillahunty uh, last well, week. Well, before you and, before you go on, uh, yeah. Jonathan, I do want to say that that was maybe the first time I ever heard of you. Is I saw the clip where you were, um, I guess it was the first one you were on there, and you came on and you talked about the undesigned coincidences related to the feeding of the five thousand and the town that that took place in, all those kind of things, and. Um, I thought it was great, and I now I just became aware in preparation for having you on that there's at least one more where you have this from more recently. And um, I encourage all the listeners here not only to go subscribe to Jonathan's channel, but and, and we'll have it linked in the description if we don't already. I think we do. And uh, go go watch those because it is great because you're right. In fact, as you watch them, what you'll see is the hosts of the Atheist Experience kind of— and I'm sorry, I, I, I don't like to speak— negatively of people but this is just the way it is they have this kind of condescending oh okay jonathan from england tell us what it is that you think counts as good evidence and it's it's very condescending i i think everyone will see that and what's great is yeah because they're used to talking to people that that are just your average joe who hasn't done an in-depth study in these things and as the conversation continues it doesn't go the way they expect it to, and all they can end up doing is just kind of dismiss it. And so I, I've just loved those. I've just loved those. But yeah, go, go ahead with the uh, about the debate. Yeah, so I, I debated Matt Dillahunty uh, last week and on, on Friday on the case uh, for the resurrection and uh, was quite frustrated. Uh, Matt Dillahunty, uh, tends, uh, he... Uh, tends to interrupt a lot uh, and so and this is a common tactic that you also see in the atheist experience where a christian will call in and and the first time i called in which is actually i think back in 2014 uh i i called in when matt dillahunty was one of the one of the hosts on the program and he just he doesn't let you get like 10 or 15 seconds into what you're trying to say before he interrupts you so it was, it's impossible to make progress uh, because he interrupts you so much. So so that was quite frustrating. And and the same thing turned out to be true of the debate. He just keeps uh, interrupting and not letting you actually finish your finish your argument. Uh, he's he's a quite he's quite an aggressive and combative uh, debater. I, I think he's he's very good on rhetoric, I have to say. But when it comes to actual substance and content, uh, not so much. Yeah, you know, I, I debated Matt Dillahunty at Baylor University in, uh, last year and um I expected him to be aggressive like he typically is. Now, it was a formal debate where we had, you know, prepared speeches and there was a cross-ex period, cross-examination period, but but I didn't find him to be as aggressive as I had prepared for, and that was kind of a surprise to me. Uh, likewise, in, in just a few days, I'll, I'll uh, there's a video that will be released of me on uh, Unbelievable Christian Radio. I know you've been on Unbelievable um, with Dan Barker and Dan Barker is very much like Matt Dillahunty that way, isn't he? He's very aggressive, very blasphemous, very, but there, 
but that didn't happen there either. So I, I, maybe I have just a calming effect on these atheists. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but but look, I think you did really well in in the debate. I think you're right that you and this happens so often in the eyes. You have to think about audience perception. And unfortunately, for an untrained eye, um, someone like Matt Dillon, who is who is rhetorically powerful and is a very good speaker, quick witted, has a lot of these from all these years of doing the atheist experience and, of course, doing debates. He has these like prepared tracks of text that he can go off on, you know, just talking for almost any anything that one will bring up. One of the great things about this discussion is I think you kind of forced him off of that track where he had to deal with some material he wasn't used to. And so when he applied some of those talking points, it, it didn't fit exactly. But why don't we go ahead and jump into a couple of these? And, and um, uh, at any point during this, Jonathan, you're the one who had the debate. So you feel free to say, yeah, you played that clip, Braxton. I, I don't really care about that. Let me talk about what I want to talk about. That'll be perfectly fine because I'm sure the audience wants to hear what you think. But I'm going to play a, a couple of clips. I'll play this first clip that'll tell you how Matt thinks about these uh, sorts of interactions and how he thinks about evidence. So here's that clip now. And my first question, of course, is what counts as strong evidence? Well, normally we would want physical evidence that's consistent with the events and points to a, the conclusion that we're trying to advocate for. We would actually like witness testimonies, provided that those witnesses can be presented, evaluated, questioned, examined, and we can determine uh, how much their statements align. Um, if you recorded a deposition of someone giving their testimony to something, um, would it be allowed in court if that person died? Yeah, it turns out that in many cases, even someone who has died, their deposition would be allowed in, in court. And part of the reason for that is that when giving a deposition, cross-examination is part of it. The process by which we go about getting a deposition would allow even someone who was dead to have their deposition considered in a court. Okay, so uh, Jonathan, I'm going to let you speak to this, but uh, let me just say initially later in the debate i think it's in this debate where matt talks about he doesn't want to be anachronistic in how he approaches the first century materials and yet this this is not only anachronistic but also provincial because he's taking the way we handle justice systems in the united states in the 21st century and uh thinking about evidence from the first century in terms of historiography along those same lines which is also maybe some category problems there now i think it's fair um, for, you know, in terms of how the average person might think about this. Well, yeah, we do actually have a system today where we think about evidence a lot, and that's the justice system. And so maybe that does give us some insight. And I wouldn't say that's entirely false, but he even calls out himself. Well, why is Matt talking about, um, you know, uh, the justice system and all these kinds of things? I think that his alter ego self that he presented there to critique himself was absolutely right. Why are you demanding that the same sort of evidence we use in court would be the same way we do historiography? Am I off on that, Jonathan? No, you're absolutely correct. And and by his method, I mean, so his method is corrosive to historiography in general, because if we if we can't allow uh, w a witness testimony uh, or testimonial evidence from 2000 years ago, then we have to throw out a lot of what we know about ancient history because a lot of it is based on testimonial evidence. And uh, it, Matt Delante said in his opening statement that really the only evidence that would be relevant would be physical evidence, but that's, that's just simply false. I mean, uh, testimonial evidence can be can be extremely strong. And uh, so I, I think that to, to, to insist that this, uh, an, invest, an inquiry into 
historical events must use the same sort of evidence that we'd rely on in a court of law today, I think is, is wrongheaded and misguided. Yeah, so someone brings up a good point. Digital Gnosis um, says, well, then why is Jay Warner Wallace talking about the justice system? Um, I, I think it depends on what you're trying to do. If Jay Warner Wallace is going to make a case that even if you apply our standards of justice today with certain particulars, then maybe those particulars hold up. I think that's the case he wants to bring. But that doesn't have to be how you approach historiography. What would you say, Jonathan? Yeah, for sure. And and what Jay Warner Wallace is talking about, um, because he's a, he's a cold case homicide detective, and so he is interested in uh, what's called forensic statement analysis, uh, which is where you have uh, witness statements from someone that has died uh, maybe decades ago, and they were witnesses uh, to to a murder, um, or have or have some information to provide as to uh, who the uh, the who might be responsible for the homicide. Uh, that took place long ago in these cold cases, and uh, he, he analyzes the, these um, these statements and utilizes some as, um, some of the the, pat, the patterns that point to to the truth of the narrative. And so he's trying to apply those to New Testament, which I think is a legitimate thing to do. We can utilize some of these same sorts of evidences when we're investigating and inquiring into the the reliability of the Gospels to see whether um, and. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I think what I'd say to that. Yeah. So let's go ahead and hear something else, because I think another big part of the way Dillahunty approaches not only your debate, but in general, and, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, this is the only way I can put it. Oftentimes Matt does what I think has been in the past called divine psychology, where he thinks that he knows the God that he does not believe exists. He knows that God so well that he knows what that God would do if that God did exist better than Christians do. And if that sounded strange to you, that's because it's strange. But here he is talking about that in um, the debate from this weekend. And I would argue that we'd probably expect the best evidence possible, because if you were God and you had gone to this extraordinary uh, length to, to do whatever it is that needed to be done in this resurrection, and it was important for people to actually have a sound evidence-based belief of this, that you would do your best to make sure that the best evidence were available. And clearly, God should have access to the best evidence and should be able to present it. And yet that's not what happened. We don't have that. We don't even have close to that. God, if it exists, has done nothing to preserve the chain of evidence, nothing to vouch for its reliability, hasn't even presented the idea of, uh, preserve the identity of the individuals performing, uh, putting forward these claims. And God should be able to understand the issues surrounding sufficient acceptable evidence and should be able to easily overcome it. And that hasn't happened. Okay, uh, Jonathan. Uh, I, I would argue that we do have sufficient evidence to conclude that Christianity is true. Now, you may ask, why doesn't why isn't it more obvious that Christianity is true? And I, I would concede that it's not obvious that Christianity is true, but it's also, I mean, there there are many things that we know to be true in science which are well supported, which are not obviously true. So, for example, uh, the chair that I'm sitting on right now is is made of. Uh, um, mostly empty space, right, based on the structure of the atom. That's what uh, physicists would say, and we have very good evidence for that. Uh, but it's not obvious that the chair is made of, of mostly empty space. In fact, it seems to be almost obvious that it's not made of empty space. Um, and so simply because something's not immediately obvious doesn't mean that we don't have good evidential support for that conclusion. But then you might still ask, okay, so why doesn't God make it um, even more obvious? Well, perhaps God wants to create a world in which uh, those that want to seek after God 
um, have to do some hard work and digging in order to find him. And uh, those that are honestly seeking after truth will ultimately find him and so will enter into a, a relationship with him. There's sufficient evidence, I think, that anyone who is truly seeking after God will will find him. And I, I would argue that that the evidence for Christianity is is such that and that anyone who is fully informed and trying their best to be as rational as possible in their investigation into the into the truth of the matter will, in the long run, come to find Christianity to be true and well supported. But there's also sufficient lack of clarity that per people that want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and, and don't want to seek after God uh, have sufficient uh, justification for not believing because they, they don't bother to look into into the evidence. So. I, um, so that that's what I'd say on that. Yeah, I, I really want to take up what you said there about what do you mean there's not good evidence? Because a lot of us think there's really good evidence. And to to add support to that, I always think it's odd when people now he didn't do this in this debate, but it, it happens all the time. This this thing about, well, look, if God was going to do it, why, well, he has said this. Why would he do it today? Like with videotape and things like that. Why would it be uh, 2000 years ago in this obscure place in, a, in, in that in, in you know, the Mediterranean world and, and that whole thing with a man who never wrote anything down and never traveled far from where he lived and all that? Um, yeah, this this is my thoughts on this, Jonathan. Looking back. Did it work? Did the gospel spread to all the world? Uh, pretty much. I mean, there are still some places in the what we call the 1040 window where the gospel hasn't gotten, but pretty much the gospel has gone through all the world. So while you and I, Jonathan, might have said to God at the time, if he had asked our opinion, this doesn't seem like the best way to do this. If you want to spread this thing, give it to somebody, some, you know, somebody in Rome, you know, some, some official, somebody who can really make sure this gets out. Um, but yet, it got out exactly the way God did it because God is omniscient and knows what to do and is smarter than we are. So anytime anyone says anything that in any way implies, it doesn't seem like God did it right because it could have been more effective. I'm thinking, okay, well, given free will and given fallen humanity, this worked out pretty darn well in terms of the gospel spreading throughout the world. Especially in view of the fact that until 313 AD, where you have the Edict of Milan, Christianity was persecuted by, by the Roman state. And there were Roman emperors and powerful officials who were trying to stamp out the Christian religion, destroy their, their scriptures, and, and uh, people were put to, put to the flames and fed to wild animals and so forth. And uh, it, it's, it's quite remarkable then that Christianity did become the global dominant world religion that it becomes. In fact, that I would argue is itself one category of evidence or one line of evidence that supports the veracity of the Christian worldview. But from the vantage point, the, if you look at the Old Testament in various passages, for example, Isaiah 49 or Isaiah 42, it speaks about uh, how the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles or a light to the nations, that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the world. Uh, and, and, of course, Jesus himself said that the gospel would be proclaimed to all nations. And so you've got a high probability of that happening on the hypothesis that Christianity is true, but a very, very small probability of that happening on the falsehood of that hypothesis. And so, therefore, it's not, it's not conclusive proof that Christianity is true by any means, but it is, I think, good evidence that can be that can be incorporated within a broader cumulative argument for the veracity of, of the Christian worldview. Yes, a cumulative case, uh, because it, it is, you know, some people in the chat are saying, well, yeah, but other religions have spread. Uh, certainly they have. Um, Islam has spread rapidly throughout the world, but um, there are differences in how that message was initially spread. 
Um, and then on top of that, th we're not saying this is a slam dunk in favor of Christianity, like you just said. This is one piece um, that put together with many other pieces seems to express to many of us that Christianity is the best explanation for the truth about the nature of reality. All right, let's let's move on to um, here's here's another approach that he took, which is kind of like, well, if we if we if we take what you're saying, Jonathan, if, if we allow for this sort of thing, then it lets in all this other weird stuff that you surely don't want to let in, which to my mind isn't a very strong way to argue is that that if you if, if we allow for this, then I mean, I guess it's kind of an, a reductio ad absurdum. But let's just listen to the clip and let's hear what he says. If we accepted that as strong evidence, then our courtrooms would be once again flooded with spectral evidence and uh, witch trials and other things, because the, the evidence for this resurrection claim is not in any way stronger than the evidence for alien abductions or somebody's claims about what a witch did in, in the woods late at night. Okay, so first of all, Jonathan, we have an assertion there that the evidence isn't better than those things when that's the whole thing that we're here to discuss. And second, mm -hmm. um, what you said, what I heard you saying throughout this whole debate is, you know, let's stop worrying about what we're going to let in if we look at this evidence. Let's stop worrying about what God would do if he did things the way I think he should do it. Let's stop talking about your favorite court cases. Let's talk about here's the evidence we have. What does it point to? And when we come to these other things that you're afraid might be let in, uh, frankly, maybe not the ones that he just mentioned, but some some things that are supernatural or strike us might actually turn out to be true as well i mean christianity allows for supernatural things that take place in other religions to actually be real it's the content of those real things that that we're worried about but but let's just take them all on a case-by-case -case basis and look at the evidence let's follow the evidence on this let's be free thinkers that's what we want to be as christians um jonathan what do you think yeah, exactly. And as I pointed out in the debate, we have to look at the particulars of each case. So simply the fact that there's other religions that make supernatural claims or claims about the miraculous doesn't give you a warrant automatically to believe those to be true. Uh, the, the point that I was trying to convey in the debate was that we have positive confirmatory evidence for the miracle claim that we were discussing, namely the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and so th that should stand or fall on its own merits completely independent of whether another miracle claim would be would be justified. Um, and I, the point I was trying to to drive home is that when we look at the the way that the, 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 the Gospels and the Book of Acts portray the resurrection encounters with the risen Jesus, it's polymodal in character, multi-sensory, involving multiple sensory modes, not just sight, but group sightings, group conversations with Jesus, physical contact with Jesus. And according to Acts 1, it was extended across a 40-day time period, right? So it wasn't just a brief and confusing episode. And uh, that is something that is very difficult to be honestly wrong about, right? And there's also uh, reasons to discount that they were lying about it, for example. And the, the example I gave in the debate was that they were willing to, to suffer um, and, and even uh, die, at least in, in some cases, uh, the, the original apostles were willing to suffer and die for their conviction that Jesus rose from the dead, which is a central tenet of the Christian faith. Uh, and we have particularly good cases and, and for Peter, um, the Lord's closest disciple, and James, the Lord's brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, that they, they died as, as martyrs uh, 
And as I pointed out, liars make poor martyrs. People will die for something they believe to be true, that, but no one dies for something they know to be false. Now, that's not conclusive proof that they were sincere, but it is evidence that they were sincere. And you can also take into account other lines of evidence. For example, the fact that the, according to all four Gospels, the chief discoverers of the empty tomb are women, which would be an unlikely invention uh, if the disciples just felt at liberty to make things up and were trying to invent the resurrection story in order to, to convince the skeptical Jews, especially because in the first century, the testimony of a woman was not highly regarded, right? It was worth uh, half that of, of a male witness. Uh, and so, so you, you've got multiple lines of evidence, which I think um, argue against the hypothesis that the disciples were, that the apostles were lying and also that the apostles were honestly mistaken. And since by undermining those hypotheses, you thereby uh, redistribute the probabilities, which then provides evidence for the resurrection claim. Yeah, I mean, that's your case, right? That's pretty well what you mm -hmm. presented. Here are exactly. the options available, and these fail, and the resurrection lasts. On the hallucination thing, I really want the audience to get this, because it still occasionally comes up. This Maybe, maybe it was a group hallucination. And um, like you said, 15%, I don't know if you said this number, but 15% of the population will experience some sort of a hallucination at some point in their life. But usually it's one sensory perception, like they see something or they hear something or they feel something. But it, multimodal uh, hallucinations are very, very rare. And um, licensed clinical psychologist Gary A. Sibby has a PhD in the subject and has a great interest in whether hallucinations can be shared by groups. And this is what he had to say. I have surveyed the professional literature, peer-reviewed journal articles, and books written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination that is an event for which more than one person purportedly shared in a vision or other sensory perception where there was clearly no external refer referent. Now, the cases where some psychologists believe they have what can be called group hallucinations involve two or more people in the same place at the same time who are having their own separate hallucinations. Now that does happen, but the idea that they would be having the same hallucination as a shared experience, um, that, I mean, that he says he hasn't found a single case and, and he's made it his life's goal to look for those things. So uh, powerful, powerful stuff. So uh, yeah, let's, let's move on to, um, and now here's Dillahunt, he's gonna give us here what he thinks would be strong evidence, which is gonna be interesting later on because you're gonna push him on this, but let's hear what he says would be strong evidence. Strong evidence is physical evidence. It is well documented. It would be the eyewitness testimony of a handful of people who were in, who were uh, questioned, cross-examined, uh, who were recorded, who demonstrated that they didn't have a particular bias in a, in a particular direction. That they were actually presenting what they saw honestly. We have no ability to investigate any of that. So this is kind of one of the most obvious apologetics that ever comes up. But on the question of them being biased, which let's notice there, he said. He said the best evidence would be physical evidence, um, a small handful. That's weird to say a handful of people. You'd think you'd want as many as you can. Barty Ehrman always says, oh, if we have these many sources, a historian would love to have 20 sources, right? So, uh, But he says uh, physical evidence, a handful of people that we can then question and cross-examine and, um, and that are not biased. You know, the bias thing, this is the simple apologetic that anyone who's been in this very long has thought of, and it's just so obvious to me is, well, of course, if these people believed that they had encountered the risen Jesus, they're going to believe they encountered the risen Jesus and want people to believe that. It's like looking for um, a witness to a car crash that doesn't believe the car crashed. You know, that's the weirdest thing or is neutral about whether the car crashed. It's, it's weird to me. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. No, you're, you're completely right. I mean, if uh, if 
if if the if, if, if someone in the first century witnessed the resurrection, they would presumably believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore their writing is probable probably in the New Testament, right? So the fact that they're biased, I don't think, uh, is hugely important here. Um, and, and also the fact that they're biased uh, is what lends credence to the argument from embarrassment, right? When we're looking at the gospel narratives, things that we find in the gospels that would be unlikely to be included, uh, given the the biases of the authors. And I gave the example of the, the women being the chief discoverers of the empty tomb. Uh, another another one uh, is that relates to the resurrection is the fact that John writes his gospel and indeed his epistles in some measure as a polemic against ascetic Gnosticism, which was becoming popular at the time he was writing, which is uh, a branch of Gnosticism, which maintained that Jesus didn't actually uh, have a physical body, right? They denied the physical, the physicality of the incarnation. It's why John emphasizes in John 1 14, the word became flesh. It's why he, um, in, in his epistles, he says that if anyone says that the Christ has not come in the flesh, he's of the Antichrist. It's why uh, he has Jesus eating royal fish in the seashore after the resurrection to emphasize the physicality of the resurrection. It's why um, he emphasizes that Jesus invites Thomas to touch him and so forth. And yet, this same John has Jesus entering and leaving through closed doors after the resurrection, appearing and disappearing at will, which seems to be something that's unlikely for, for John to invent, given that he's trying to uh, to encourage people who are feeling a bit insecure about the physicality of the resurrection to believe that the, re that the, that the resurrection itself was, was physical. So the fact that their bias can actually um, strike in our favor at, at that point. Um, so. Yeah. Um, I, uh... I had something else to say on that. It's gone. Uh, but let's, uh, let's what happens when you start to read the, the side chat. Um, but let's, uh, let's take a look at the next thing, which is where you did press him on. Okay, well, then what evidence would convince you, Matt? This is something that, like, I think every debater, at least for the past couple of years, has pressed Matt on. Because I'll just let the cat out of the bag, and my viewers have heard me say this. Um, and, and I'll just tell you what I, what I think is going on. So I've been watching Matt for a while now and trying to be as fair in assessing what's going on with his epistemology as I can be. And uh, what I see happening is he, he's always asking for a demonstration. We need a demonstration of the supernatural. We need a demonstration of, of God's existence. And so you say, okay, what do you mean by demonstration? What would that look like? And, and that's where he says, I don't know what that would look like, but if there's a God, he would know what that would look like to show me. Okay, so then whatever we present as apologists that we think counts as a demonstration, he'll dismiss and say that's not a demonstration for reasons that can only mean it doesn't convince me personally. And if you say, well, no, no, he might mean that it's repeatable or, or it's whatever. He's given all of those, in, he's given different ideas in different debates. The bottom line is it doesn't convince him. Okay, well, then on the other hand, Dillahunty admits that he doesn't think you can have Cartesian certainty, like absolute 100% certainty, about anything, even your own existence. Okay, so, so you admit we shouldn't have to give you that for you to be convinced. But you want a demonstration, but there's this huge jungle in between what we think is a good demonstration and, and, what, and this Cartesian certainty, and you just, anything that we give you, no matter how good, you can just say... Yeah, that doesn't convince me. And convincing Matt becomes winning the debate, right? To the extent to which winning a debate is important. Um, you lose if you don't convince me. So you haven't convinced me. There hasn't been a demonstration. 
And it's almost like this isn't the right way to talk about it. So I know that. Okay. So go easy on me, folks. But it's almost like an unfalsifiable epistemology. It's like, what, if you're not willing to tell me what would convince you, and you're just saying you don't know, then, and, you, and you're just going to stick with you don't know, then what are we doing here? You know what? I mean, th there's no way I can give you anything. So, all right. Um, so did I let you talk about that? You, you, did you, did I play the clip? Yeah. What, what evidence would convince you? No, you haven't, you, you, you haven't play played it. the clip yet. Let's play it. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what kind of evidence would convince Matt that the resurrection actually occurred? What kind of uh, documentary evidence uh, would be sufficient? What, even what kind of physical evidence would be sufficient to convince you? Um, if you can't give an answer to that, then I'm skeptical of whether your view is an evidence-based view. Um, you said what, uh, that you would want the best evidence possible. Yeah, now you can notice there that he kind of laughed at you. It was like a, an annoyed laughter. And we saw the same thing happen in his debate with Mike Winger um, when Mike Winger said a similar thing. So I just don't think you're interested in the evidence. And Matt got very upset. There are two or three things, and, and there are with me. There are things that will upset me. I, I think I, I don't think I show it as much, but, um, but there are things that will upset Matt. One thing is if you question whether he was ever – uh, a real Christian. Now, he obviously doesn't believe that Christianity is true or that you can have a relationship with Jesus or be filled with the Holy Spirit. But to the extent that he thinks anybody has a relationship with Jesus, if you question that experience, then he gets very upset about that, despite the fact that he's questioning, questioning all of our experiences of claiming that we've had a, a relationship with Jesus. But another thing would be if you talk about atrocities done by the hands of atheists in the 20th century. And then this one, this one, if you if you question that he's really interested in evidence, that really upsets him. And I think he got much more aggressive as this debate went on. And I suspect it was because you said that. So you take it away, Jonathan. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in January this year, I did a debate with an atheist scientist called Dr. Peter Atkins at, in Oxford. And I asked him the same question of what would change his mind about the existence of God. And he said nothing. Nothing would change his mind. And... Uh, Matt Delante says, uh, I don't know what would change my mind, which in my opinion is a cop-out. I mean, I, I could give you uh, hypothetical evidences that would in principle change my mind uh, about Christianity. Uh, so I, I, and I think it's quite reasonable to expect that if you're going to be rejecting a view which is offered uh, by uh, appeals to evidence, then you ought to be able to say what evidence in principle would convince you, even if you're not convinced by the current evidence as it's presented to you. So I, I think that uh, Matt Dillahunty is, is being a bit uh, anti-intellectual at that point, to be honest. Right. And, and I've noticed that in past debates, he, you know, when people commonly come up with some outlandish hypothesis or experience that could happen, like um, I've, I've mentioned this a lot on the show, but like when um, Matt Slick asked him in 2014 or 2015, what if someone parted an ocean in Jesus name, would you believe in the supernatural then? No. Well, what would convince you? I don't know. And when he had the debate with Mike Lycona, and Mike Lycona talked about what if my head was cut off and reattached, and I told you about an encounter I had with a person that's dead that you knew that only you and that person knew about, you know, all these crazy things. And the response is, well, you always go to these things that, that, yeah, show me something like that. That's not the point. The point is not whether these things have happened. The point is about your epistemology, that even if those things did happen, you wouldn't believe on the basis of those things. Now, there's the question of, really would he believe i think that would be powerful enough that somebody might believe but going by what you're saying you still wouldn't believe which tells us the problem is not with the level of evidence uh or looking for a demonstration it seems that 
at least if that's part of the problem, a big part of the problem is you've constructed, it seems to us that you've constructed an epistemology such that nothing can convince you, but it's only because of the epistemology that you've constructed. Um, so I, I know we're kind and, of on the and, same and, page there, right? Yeah, exactly. And in, in which case, why are we even doing this debate, right? What's the point of having a discussion if your mind is already made up and you don't want to be confused with the facts, right? If, you, if you're not willing to to have your mind changed by presentation of evidence and you're not able to tell me what sort of evidence would be sufficient to convince you, then I don't understand why he does these discussions. So uh, Digital Gnosis again says, the sea parted in God's name or a head reattached would convince me. Great. And here's what I, here's what I often say. If that would convince you, and I'm not talking to you, Digital Gnosis, as much as I am people out there who, um, who, who are on the fence or thinking through these things, if something like that would convince you, then Matt Dillahunty's opinions about what should count as good and bad evidence should have no hold on you as a result of this, because he has an unreasonable level of skepticism, I would say. Um, now, what I would then say to someone like Nathan here, Digital Gnosis, I would say, well, then, then it sounds like that is maybe the high mark. Does it have to be quite that high? Could it be two or three degrees below that? And where do we find where, and this is kind of where the Bayesian stuff comes in, right? It's like, where, where do we mm -hmm. find where your sweet spot is, where it would increase your level of, um, of belief? All right, let's, let's move on to the next thing. Uh, this, was, this was an incredible moment because one of the things we talked about, Jonathan, is you and I, before we, we did the show, was your understanding of New Testament studies, uh, even among non-Christians, and your understanding of how historiography is done by practicing historians, which I, I'm not a historian, uh, but but I'm aware of it. I have friends who are, and I read the literature. And so um, it's, it's, it's shocking that a statement like this would be made. Let's, let's listen to it. Would you say that uh, there's strong evidence that Jesus died on the cross or not? No. Okay, so... Um, what do you make of the testimonies in Paul and Acts and the Gospels? I don't consider testimonies to be strong evidence. And then when you point to Paul right off the bat, was Paul there when Jesus died on the cross? So you would dismiss all testimony? No, I didn't say I would dismiss all testimony. Was Paul there when Jesus was supposedly killed on a cross? We don't know. Okay, do we have any reason to think that Paul was there? Uh, no, but he may have been, but we don't know. Yeah, and if Paul was there, don't you think Paul would have said, I was there? Yeah. Um, so, first of all, he's kind of arguing from what Paul doesn't say. Kind of an argument from silence there. But this same thing happened in the Mike Lycona debate where he made a claim that Jesus, that Paul never saw Jesus during his earthly ministry or never encountered Jesus during his earthly ministry. You asked him about the cross. And and then he makes this claim, or, or at least indicates, that Paul would have wasn't there, or in the case of Lycona, didn't see Jesus during his earthly ministry. And I love what both of you guys did, which is, okay, what's your evidence for that? I'm a bit skeptical about that. <laughs> what's your evidence for that? And uh, there isn't any, which shows that when you shoulder the burden of proof, and I suspect um, that this is why uh, people like Matt typically try not to have to make claim, not to make claims because they don't want to shoulder the burden of proof because it's hard to defend claims like that. And you called him out on it, which is interesting because this isn't even really central to the case you're making. It's just that you saw, hey, wait a minute, he made a claim. Let's see if he can back it up. Am I reading all that right, Jonathan? Exactly. You're, you're completely right. And he has this uh, new historical paradigm where the where in order for any historical writer to have any relevance to an event, they have to be a primary witness, which is just nonsense. Uh, 
I mean, the Apostle Paul is himself a witness to Jesus' close disciple Peter and to the Lord's brother James, and presumably to other apostles as well. Uh, we, we know this because in First Corinthians 15, 3-8, he says, he summarizes the gospel. Um, you know, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Kephas and to the twelve. And to more than 500 brothers at one time was from still living, the some have fallen asleep, and they appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one untimely born. Um, and then uh, he goes on in verse 9 through 11 uh, to, uh, to say, um, for I am the least of the apostles, I'm worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This grace towards me was not in vain, for in the contrary, I worked hard on any of them, but not I, but the grace of God is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. And so on that verse 11, where he says, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed, he thus assumes that the message he's now presenting uh, concerning the death, burial, resurrection of Christ is consistent with what's already been preached to the Corinthians by the other apostles, in particular Peter and James. So we know independently from 1 Corinthians 1, that the Corinthians were acquainted with the preaching of Peter, or Kephas, uh, because uh, he said there are divisions of factions in your midst. Some say, I follow Kephas, or others, Apollos, others, I follow Paul, others, I follow Christ. So the Corinthians were acquainted with Peter's preaching, and and, and so that indicates, and, and that, that argument stands independently of whether you think 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 is a creedal tradition or not. Uh, there's some good reason to think that uh, that, that text is a creed, uh, but it, what's less clear to me is exactly when Paul received that creed, but it's very likely that he received it from the Jerusalem elders. Um, and so since that, 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 that is as close as you can really get uh, to an eyewitness statement uh, concerning the, uh, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, because it shows this is a belief that goes. That's not something that has arisen much later, but something that goes right back to those who were uh, from the first uh, eyewitnesses, uh, the the apostles right. themselves. Right, and going off of Galatians chapter one, it could be that mm -hmm. that's when he got it. When after, you know, if yeah. you place the conversion of Paul somewhere between one and three years after the events of the resurrection, and uh, then he goes away for three years, doesn't talk to anybody, and then he goes to talk to them in Jerusalem. If that's when he got it, which we can't be sure, you're right, but if that's when he got it, it goes back to within five years of, of the events and was a pre-existing thing then. Now, um, yeah. you say, well, yeah, of course, you're an evangelical saying that. You guys are obviously going to think that. But yet we have people, I mean, even some members of the Jesus, Jesus Seminar have put it within three years. So, uh, you know, I, th this, is, this is one of those things that, and like the dating of first Corinthians, these kind of things are, I mean, all, always you're going to have outliers, but these are not things that are heavily doubted or controversial. Um, right, exactly. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that's a popular argument to link first uh, Corinthians 15 with, with Galatians one and, and Paul's visit to Jerusalem three years after his conversion. And it's plausible Paul received the creed then. I just don't think that we can be sure. So I don't rest my argument on that because I, I, I think it's conjectural. And that's a good thing for young apologists listening that don't overstate your case. Right. Um, one, one thing I want to say real quick is thank you, Christa, Christopher, Christoph Keating. Uh, thank you for that super chat. It says, I can answer any question, but most of my answers will be, I don't know. That's honesty, not anti-intellectualism. Yeah, you take any individual person on the planet, if they were asked everything, most of their answers would be, I don't know. Um, the, the thing is, I don't know is a perfectly fine answer. I'll be doing a Q&A um, in front of an audience this weekend will be social distancing. Don't look at me that way, Internet. But the thing about it is, um, and, and you know, what, my I used to get stressed out about those things. I don't get stressed out now. You know why? Because I have this wonderful answer that if I don't know something, I say I don't know. There's a difference between saying I don't know and using I don't know as 
a debate strategy or using I don't know to avoid the force of an argument. Um, you make up your minds about when that is happening and when it is not. But thank you for that super chat. I appreciate that. Um, all right, uh, let's uh, let's take a look now. At, oh, uh, anything else I wanted to say about that? No, I don't think so. All right, this is the big crux of this thing, I think, or at least one of them, uh, Jonathan, is this deal with claims versus evidence. And so let's listen to a clip here that I think makes it clear. Part of your part of the problem in your epistemology is you make this distinction between a claim and an ev and evidence, and yes. you've made this in a number of your debates, and I totally disagree with that approach um, because You're a claim. Wrong. Because a claim is evidence. No, it's no, uh, it's not. To be explained. It, it's no. A claim is not evidence. If I say I have a hundred dollar bill in my wallet, that's a claim. It is a statement about a fact. It is not evidence in and of itself. Oh, whoop! That's me. Okay. Uh, you want to talk about this, Jonathan? I've got things I can say, but let let the audience hear from you. For sure. Yeah, I, I totally disagree with this distinction he wants to make between claims and evidence. Because, uh, I mean, if 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 so, if a woman claims that she was she was sexually assaulted or raped, that's not proof that she was raped, but it is evidence she was raped, right? And uh, if you have another witness coming forward and corroborating this claim, maybe they they saw it happen, for example, then that's further evidence that bolsters the first woman's claim. And if the witnesses who are making the claim that this woman was sexually assaulted actually have a track record of being habitually honest and truthful and reliable then that makes it stronger evidence, right? So uh, a claim, a, 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 an eyewitness claim is, is evidence uh, and it, it's, it needs to be explained. Uh, and it might be explained because the, the person actually did witness what they claimed to have witnessed, or it might be that they lied about it, or it might be that they were honestly mistaken. And by looking at the particulars of the case, we can adjudicate between these these options. So if the person has a track record of honest reportage and habitual truth telling, then that is evidence that will favor the hypothesis that she wasn't lying. She was sincere in that belief. And maybe she was maybe she thought she saw something when in fact she didn't, but she was at least sincere. And then we have to say and then we have to investigate the, the hypothesis that they were honestly mistaken. Uh, and in the case of the resurrection, I did that by looking at the polymodal and multisensory nature of, of the resurrection experiences. And there's other evidences we could cite along those lines as well. But uh, and, and Dilla Hunty later in the debate switched his terminology and, start, and, and said that maybe it's better to say that propositions are not evidence. OK, that, that's fair. But then that robs it of its relevance to the New Testament studies, because when we're dealing with the, the New Testament, we're not just dealing with propositions. We're dealing with claims. Uh, and uh, claims which are, have shown themselves to be close up to the facts. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, but, you know, like his response to you was, OK, but then if you're assessing whether I'm an honest person based on past experience or past claims, that becomes the evidence rather than the claim itself. But here's the thing. And I don't even know if you'll agree with the way I handle this question or this evidence claim or this definition of evidence. But let's just do it real colloquially and and. What what does what did what do you what's your intuition tell you about this? All right, if a person comes to me and says, "Hey, I was at a football field last night in another city, and some unidentified flying object hovered overhead and then left," okay. Now I'm not necessarily convinced of that. I may be convinced that he saw something. I'm starting to sound like Dylan. You know, I may be convinced that he saw something that he doesn't understand. But here's the thing: Do I have reason to believe? that a flying object appeared over there? 
Yes, I have some reason to believe that now that I did not have had I not heard that claim. It doesn't mean I believe it yet. It doesn't mean I'm convinced. But do I have some reason to believe that that I didn't have before? Yes. Okay. It's a non-zero movement of the needle, I would say. Now, um, what if I had a thousand people who all say that they were there and saw this thing happen? Do I have more reason now to believe it than I did with one person? Yes. You know what that tells me? That the claims alone, without knowing anything about the background of the person, the claims alone do count for something. They count as evidence of something. If we mean by evidence, a good reason to believe that something happened. It just may not be enough evidence. Um, that's why the debate is, is there strong evidence? Well, you went above and beyond that by showing, look, we actually have reason to believe that these people who are making the claim seem to be reliable um, insofar as we can check that, not only in terms of their honesty, but also in terms of uh, their research into this and, and looking at, look, you know, deal, like Luke says, he went and dealt with these things and looked and tried to see where he could find stuff. So anyway, um, I, I just don't, I don't get that deal because I think that's, you can walk through that mentally and say, no, no, no. If someone tells me something, it's a reason to believe it that I didn't have before. It doesn't mean it convinces me, but then you have to, then you can move on from there. How much of this do we have? Is it good enough? You, are you with me on all that, Jonathan? Yeah, totally agree with everything you said. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. That's what I love to hear. I love it when people agree with me. Um, real quickly, I just want to say thank you, JMD Apologetics, for that $2 super chat. He says, why are you using my office background? I did a stream not too long ago with him and some other guys, and he was using a green screen and had taken a photo of my background and put it behind him. It was funny. Uh, thanks so much for that super chat. I really appreciate that. All right, we're almost done, Jonathan. I, I said I'd get you out of here in an hour, and I'm trying to do that as best I can. So don't get mad and yell at me. All right. Um, Let's let's take a look at this. Uh, th this this is the same sort of a point, but he makes a he makes a point that sounds kind of sensible here. I, I want to hear what you think about it. When you consider um, numerous instances of verification of the gospels between themselves, the way they interlock in a casual and subtle way, the way that they intersect with extra biblical secular sources, I could discuss many of those. Uh, that provides. Uh, a primitive facie basis for trusting them on issues that we cannot directly cross-check them on because it, it shows that they're close up to the facts and that, it's substantially, that they are substantially trustworthy and reliable in the reportage of the events they talk about. Yeah, th th that'll never fly. I love my mother, and my mother has sent me email, has sent me letters uh, essentially talk, telling me that she wouldn't lie to me and God is real and Jesus is real. I don't believe my mother's lying to me. I just believe she's wrong. I believe she's sincerely conveying information that she's wrong about. Uh, first of all, there is a funny, there is something funny to me about Matt saying, my mother said to me, look, Christianity is true. I wouldn't lie to you. You know, <laughs> I've started saying that to people. Like I was talking to another apologist and he was like, um, I'm still struggling between it's a young earth and it's an old earth. And I said, man, it's an old earth. Trust me. I wouldn't lie to you. <laughs> so it is, there is something <laughs> funny about that. Uh, but well, how do you respond? Is it like that, really? What, what's going on here? Yeah, so Dillahunty's really missing the point here. Uh, it's not that we're saying that the, the gospel authors wouldn't lie to us and they told us that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, rather, we're saying that there's numerous points of historical confirmation which cumulatively show that the gospel authors are people who are close up to the facts and they have reliable access to information uh, and uh, that they, they, are, they are habitually truthful in the reportage of that information. And so therefore we have to take seriously that what they say concerning the nature and variety of the resurrection experiences of the apostles comes directly from, uh, that that reflects the, the, apost the apostolic eyewitnesses. 
And that's what needs to be explained, including, as I mentioned earlier, it's polymodal or multi-sensory nature and its extension across a 40-day time period. And so the question is then, okay, so were they honestly mistaken about that or were they setting out to deceive people? And I, I already gave numerous lines of evidence uh, against both of those hypotheses. And, and as you reduce the probability successively of those two competing hypotheses, it increases the probability of the hypothesis that Jesus really did rise from the dead because the probabilities get redistributed. And, uh, and so that that's the argument. And so it's a, it's a cumulative argument for the substantial trustworthiness of the gospel accounts and then also a cumulative argument against the the two competing contentions, i.e. that the apostles claimed Jesus rose from the dead because they lied about it or because they were honestly mistaken and thereby that supports the resurrection claim. So Dillhandy was just completely missing the point at that particular moment. So are you saying something like, look, when we take into account what we know about these authors and what they're honestly reporting and the things that we can put together, it does, in a sense, um, it, cha it changes what you think about the probabilities. It, it increases the probabilities. Is, is that what we're basically saying here? Exactly. So it's kind of like, um, I, I often say this, I call it recalibrated probability. It's the same thing. You're recalibrating the probability when you take into account, and I think this often gets overlooked or at least not focused on enough in these discussions that um, universally it's agreed upon by scholars. Now, obviously there's outliers, but universally it's accepted by scholars that Jesus thought of himself as God's eschatological agent or God's agent to bring about the kingdom during his lifetime on earth, as if he's carrying around a sign saying, just watch my life and see what happens. I think when you understand that there's a predictive ability there before the fact, and that uh, along with the typical evidences that are given for uh, the resurrection, it increases the probability. It also increases the probability if we have God in place. And as you said, you think there's good evidence. We have good evidence, you said, from science and, of course, from philosophy and other ways, that there is a God. Well, that also increases the probability. So that's what we're doing here. You're doing it in a different way or an interesting way where you're saying, look, if we analyze what we know about these documents, what we know about the people who likely wrote them, it increases the probability that they're telling us the truth, they're honestly reporting this. Yeah, exactly. And the, the prior probability... I, which is the probability of the resurrection happening just given the background information alone, I think can be increased by a demonstration that God exists. And I think that can be done from the natural sciences. I think we make a good case from the natural sciences that God exists. And also it can be increased by fleshing out the theohistorical context of the resurrection to borrow language from William Lane Craig. And the way that I do this, and I alluded to this in the debate, is to point out numerous points of coincidence between the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and the Old Testament, such as the coincidence given the theological import that Jesus' death happened to coincide with the Jewish feast of Passover, given that the New Testament theology is Jesus as the Passover lamb, given that Christianity becomes the dominant global religion that it becomes, given that, uh, and, and there, I wrote an article where I document some of these examples and laid out how that case can be fleshed out, but I think you can increase the prior probability that God would have plausible motivation for raising Jesus of Nazareth from the dead by looking at, at those sorts of evidences. Yeah, that's great. Uh, real quick, uh, Mr. Monotone, thank you for that super chat. It says, blessings and shalom. Shalom back at you. And there's someone else here. Richie Torres says, let's thank God Matt is wrong. Amen and amen. All right, last couple of clips here, Jonathan, and they hang mm -hmm. together. Sure. But I think this moment is the moment that many people remember from the debate. And I want you to have the chance to talk about it. So first of all, let's get there's there's a real aggressive moment between the two of you here. I want you to let's take a look at this together. I just asked you how you distinguish between the people who you think you're you're being honest uh, and have access to the facts for the religion that you accept. 
how you distinguish between those and the people who are making claims for other religions that you don't accept. And instead of giving me anything close to how you would tell the difference, which is what epistemology is about, how I tell the difference between, hey, this religion, you're, you're basically saying these religious accounts are true and these religious accounts over here are not true, and you have no better evidence for your truth than they have for theirs. Because what you have is a claim from someone who you find truthful. Now, are you just going to say that for all those other religions or for those other supernatural accounts, you just don't find those people truthful? Uh, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Then I don't find yours truthful, and there's no point in having a debate because we no longer give a damn about epistemology. We're just going to go with how our gut feels, right? Well, we're going to look at the evidence. and when I, I've been asking for evidence. Do you have any evidence that doesn't come from the Bible? No. Okay. So, so you, you have nothing but a hearsay account from an unidentifiable source. We have evidence from the New Testament, including Paul and the Gospels and so forth. Yeah. So why don't you start responding to the evidence rather than just dismissing it? Now, obviously, there are things that are extra biblical that can be used as a part of a case for the resurrection. But the point you're making is in terms of the case you're presenting tonight. Um, yeah, I'm using the Bible. I'm, but you're using material in the Bible and you're, you're not just saying, look, the Bible's the inspired and inerrant word of God. And it says this, therefore, it's all true. Um, but this was an interesting moment. It was almost like a kind of a mic drop moment, which is, look, stop, stop dealing with what happens if we let this evidence in. What does it do to aliens and ghosts and all this? Stop with the, the witches in the middle of the night and all that stuff. Just deal with the evidence I'm presenting you. Um, what, what was going through your head at this moment? Yeah, at that particular point, I was beginning to get quite frustrated uh, because Dillahunty was shouting over me, uh, constantly interrupting, not engaging in any meaningful way with the arguments I presented. Uh, it's why I consider this to be one of the least useful debates I've done on the resurrection, because if you look at some of my other debates on the resurrection, my opponents actually engaged with the material that I presented to them. Uh, I didn't necessarily find their engagements uh, convincing, but they at least attempted to mount a response to what I was presenting to them. Dillahunty, on the other hand, just dismissed it. Uh, and so I was beginning to get quite uh, frustrated uh, at, at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to see the, the, the to be continued of that here in just a moment. But first, I want to thank uh, Daniel Apologetics, a friend and, and supporter of the of the work we're doing here and has his own incredible YouTube channel. He was just sharing today that uh, someone asked if they could use some stuff from one of his videos in their Sunday school class. So he, he gives this famous quote from C.S. Lewis, Christianity of false is of no importance and if true of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Uh, yeah, thanks, Daniel. I appreciate the super chat. Thank you so much. I don't know what that amount of uh, currency comes to in American dollars, but in any case, you uh, you supported us, and, and thank you so, so much for that. Um, all right, so here's what happens next, and this is the last clip we have, but a uh, little, little, little bit of drama showing up here. If you're just going to keep dismissing the evidence, then we're done. Yes, we are. We, we are. And you know whose fault it is? The God that you believe in, because the God that you believe in is too stupid to understand that when he presents something in a way where it's indistinguishable from other things that are false, that's the end of the conversation. I didn't make up the rules about what counts as evidence. Oh, did he just leave? No, I don't. I mean, he's definitely not here, but I don't know if... I, don't I heard him say we're done. I don't know if it was... I'd be surprised if it was a rage. I'm pretty quit. sure he just quit because I'm not going to accept the stories from his book. Okay, first of all, 
I didn't never heard the term rage quit before, so I have that now. You didn't Neither seem rage. <laughs> you didn't seem rageful. Before you answer, Jonathan, I want to clear something up just so people don't think I'm a heretic. It's too early in the show for people to think I'm a heretic. But uh, Richie Torres <laughs> gives another super chat. Thank you so much for that, and says the Bible is our ultimate authority as Christians. Yes, believing that the Bible is authoritative is an is I think an important thing for Christians, obviously. Um, but when we're making an apologetic case to someone else who doesn't grant that. Um, it's sometimes helpful to use only those passages that, um, ev that, that even secular historians will grant is containing historical material, or you're going to argue for the veracity of the passage that you're, that you're using. So, of course, in terms of our Christian uh, discipline, it's, a, it's one thing to, to think about the authority of the Scripture, and, we, and we, that's very important to us. But in making an apologetic case, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit of a different approach. So just wanted to make sure it was clear on that. I'm not, I'm not denying the authority of the Bible. But thank you, uh, Richie. I do appreciate that super chat. All right, so Jonathan, you walked out on this thing. You rage quit on this thing um, after being cut off, yelled at, and I should say being told that God is stupid. Which, if there was ever a good time to walk out. Listen, atheists, I realize that you feel like, some of you feel like you've been wronged by Christians. Some of you haven't. Some of you feel like you have. Some of you feel like uh, horrible things were said to you by Christians. Um, vicious rhetoric and those sorts of things. I, I get all that. But if you want to have traction with a Christian who actually believes these things, calling the one we think is the creator of the universe, the one holy God, stupid, might cause something that looks a bit like a rage quit, even though I don't think there was any rage there. Jonathan, uh, unpack this for us. Yeah, so that's, that's the, the only time I've ever done that in a debate. I was uh, really getting quite frustrated with his constant uh, uh, interruptions and shouting and, yes, calling God stupid and not in, engaging or interacting in any meaningful way with, with the arguments, just repeating points he's already made that I'd already addressed and, and so forth. So um, I... I said, we're done, just as Dillahunty does in his Atheist Experience episodes and uh, and hung up, just as Dillahunty does on his Atheist Experience shows, and which he's in fact done with me when I called in in 2014 to the Atheist Experience. Um, so in, in hindsight, however, I, I think that was probably the, the wrong decision on, on my part, um, because I don't think it was fair on, on James or, or for that matter, Matt. And so I, I did return after about five or seven minutes uh, to the show and, and apologized uh, to Matt uh, for, for leaving and, and continued the discussion. You did do that and, um, and, and to be commended for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the internet is an interesting place. Uh, I, I, you know, I, you, you come on someone's show, you don't necessarily know how they're going to act. You don't know how the moderator is going to, going to handle it. Not, not that I'm casting any aspersions on James. That's not the point. But you don't, you don't know what you're stepping into necessarily. And for someone like you who is an academic who tries to take these discussions seriously and really cares about people, and it's not WWE here. So when you do they have WWE in England, Jonathan? Um, I uh, uh, what, what does WWE stand for? It's it's World Wrestling something. It's, it's yeah, we have wrestling, but I'm not sure what the organization. You probably have is, real but, wrestling, but anyway, yeah. the, the point is, yeah. the point is, it's not that. It's not the the uh, trying to you know be a stage man or something and be the big man. That's not that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to we're trying to actually present a case, and and you can present the opposite case. You can even say things that we're going to find blasphemous on occasion. But but if there's no content, if you're just talking over it, if that's then yeah, that, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, you know what. 
uh, I think I'm done here. But uh, you say in this case it wasn't the right move, and so I applaud you for coming back. But in the end, uh, those are all the clips I have. But in the end, I want to give you an opportunity. Is, is there anything that came up that you want to talk about that maybe I didn't present a clip or, or, or say here? Uh, no, I, I think we covered uh, most of most of the bases I wanted to cover. Um, oh, yeah, there was one point uh, later in the Q&A where Matt said that the prior probability of the resurrection is zero. And actually, I only caught that when I played the debate back because I, I hadn't. There was so much said that I, I didn't get it during the debate. But he said the prior probability of the resurrection is zero, which I think just, again, demonstrates his ignorance in the field of epistemology, because to claim that something has a prior probability of zero means that you have to demonstrate that there's some sort of logical contradiction entailed, such that such as a married bachelor or a square circle. Uh, any proposition with a non-zero prior probability can, in principle, be demonstrated with enough evidence. And no amount of evidence could overcome a prior probability of zero. So uh, there's no amount of evidence you could ever present me that would convince me that a married bachelor exists because it's just impossible for a married bachelor to exist. Uh, and so that I think maybe gives some insight into his epistemology where he doesn't know of any type of evidence that would convince him to change his mind on the resurrection because he puts the prior probability at zero, which is a very anti-intellectual and just reveals, I think, again, his ignorance of basic epistemology. Yeah, and which is interesting because he he kind of puts himself out there as the epistemology guy, like that's his his thing. Um, but um, well, I'll tell you, I should pump this. You're going to have sometime this weekend. I, I can I say this? I'd like to pump it for you. Uh, you're you're going to have an, a discussion with Tim McGrew, and you all are going to yeah, walk good. through. Go ahead. Yeah, we're, we're going to record it, so it won't be live this weekend, but we're going to record uh, a discussion okay. uh, on that. Mm -hmm. But soon, that'll be available to the public soon, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And, and he's gonna, they're going to walk through together some more of the epistemological things, or, or perhaps some of the things we covered, but it may be in more detail. And so you'll, you'll want to you'll check that out. What, what channel should they, is that going to be on your channel, Jonathan? Yeah, it'll be on my personal channel. Mm -hmm. Okay, so make sure you subscribe to Jonathan's channel if you like that sort of content. And, um, and I'm just glad to get to expose you to our audience. I'm sure that most of our audience already was familiar with you. You also do, do you still do the Apologetics Academy? Yeah, I do. Um, not every Saturday. I used to do it every week, but I just don't have time these days. So I do it every, every so often. Uh, I, I recently did a, a webinar with John Steingard of, of the uh, Christian music band, yeah. Hawk Nelson, who recently lost his faith and came out as a non-believer. So I did a two-hour discussion with him on, on the reasons he had for losing his faith, which is quite interesting. So you can check that out on the Apologetics Academy YouTube channel. I want to check that out. So that go check that out and um, um, listen. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jonathan. It's really been a pleasure, and I look forward to more of your debates and resources in the future. Um, have you said everything that you feel like you want to say? Is there anything else you want to pump? Yeah, I think uh, that's, that's all. Thank you so much for having me on again. It's been an honor. All right, and listen, to the rest of you, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, watching the comments as this continues, and tomorrow we'll have another video um, maybe about 10 o'clock in the morning uh, Central Standard Time, I'll be premiering a video on another debate review. But listen, I've enjoyed having you with me. Thank you so much for the super chats. I love every one of you. And if you do want to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. In fact, I see Aaron Pilkey is, is throwing in another super chat right now. Um, and uh, just as I'm signing off, uh, thank you so much for that. That means so much. 
uh, you, you all are just such a blessing. And uh, but you can you can you can support us at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. There's five seminary level courses um, with PowerPoints, as well as other episodes and ebooks that are free for you and other episodes that were never released. So uh, if you if you want to help us out, that really does help us every now and then we have to buy new equipment. And so thank you so much. But I'm not going to make this uh, an infomercial for Trinity Radio. Uh, but listen, um, make sure you're back tomorrow and we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Thanks, Tatiana. You're such an encourager, along with several others. Thanks, Slam RN. Amen, Eddie. Thanks to the programmer. Thanks, Daniel Apologetics. It is good jogging music. Trinity Radio signing off.